0: Well, this guy's hit the New York Times best-selling list for every book he's ever written, and uh, most of them reaching as high as number one. He sold over 12.5 million copies in the United States, plus millions more in 20 international markets that carry his books. How does a guy who grew up dyslexic, he publishes a book by himself, by the way, he markets it to his home state of Minnesota, sells a ton. Then he gets noticed by a, uh, a literary agent in New York. Well, this gentleman's got 13 novels now under his belt, and uh, I have to say he's one of the most highly read authors of modern times, and of course, we're talking about renowned suspense novelist Vince Flynn, how the heck are you, man? I'm good, Greg, how Go, are you? I'm doing well, thank you very much. Vince, before we get into some of your work, you were an economics major in college. You yep. worked for Kraft Foods as a AE after college, I guess, uh, like like an account exec uh, handling certain products. Yeah, product called, called
1: on Super Value and Nash Finch and places like that.
0: Then you went into real estate, commercial real estate.
1: Well, actually, in between those two, I tried to fly for the Marine Corps, but was medically disqualified. Yeah, because yeah. Because of a series of concussions I had as a child.
0: I can relate to that, Vince. I've, I had I had my nose broken a few times growing up as a kid in, in uh, Connecticut, um, falling out of trees, jumping out off of roofs, and things like that. I, was it was it, uh, were your concussions like uh, from you know messing around as a kid? Um, one was a car
1: accident. One was uh, hockey uh, without a helmet. And ah. uh, Both of them resulted in uh, subdural hematomas and oh geez, so that's uh, swelling of the brain, which I didn't know any better as a child, but. The uh, one of them, the second one, when I was 11, I went into a convulsive seizure. And uh, the Marine Aviation Program, they take that very seriously. Sure. Um, so I, I took about two years to try to do a medical waiver, and, and they wouldn't grant it. Hmm. And uh, that's when I started writing my first book, Term Limits.
0: That was published when, uh, Vince, 19, let's see. I self-published
1: that in August of 97. 97, that's what I thought. I'll be a- and then it was uh, published again by uh, Pocket Books and then print Simon & Schuster the following year Yeah. in hardcover. And uh, it landed on multiple bestseller lists. And then when they put it on paperback, it hit the New York Times bestseller list.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm a proponent of thriller authors. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Deaver, um, yourself, uh, Demille, uh, Baldacci, uh, uh, Nelson.
1: Nelson Demille is one of the all-time best, and I'm a, a big fan of David's work, especially his early stuff. He is, he is.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I, I talked with David a few months ago. We did we did a really nice show. We talked about uh, he being a Catholic boy, growing up in Virginia, you know, cooking Italian food, that kind of stuff. Uh, what what was your background like, Vince?
1: I grew up in, I was born in St. Paul, Yeah. and um, my father was a high school English teacher and football, basketball, and baseball coach. My mother was a professional wildlife artist. Oh, wow. I'm the fifth of seven kids, Um, Irish Catholic, seven kids in nine and a half years, and uh, (laughs) we all went to Catholic schools, and uh, (laughs) my dad eventually went on to work for Control Data, and my mom had a successful art career, Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, the... Fighting Flynn, we have, there's
0: five boys, and we all beat the crap out of each other, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. Me too. Um, I'm the oldest of eight kids. Uh, my dad was oh, in, okay. my dad was in World War II. Um, Seabees. Uh he went over at 17, came back, uh, got married, started the family, yada yada in the in the 50s. But yeah, eight kids. I'm the oldest of eight. Six boys in a row. Boxing gloves were one of the first things I think my dad bought us as kids because he was tired of the fighting inside. So he finally he finally said one day, you know what, boys, take it outside. Put the gloves on. Go beat yourself silly if you want. But those were great times. I mean, I went to parochial school also. Those were great times, Vince. I don't know about you, but but they really set kind of set the tone for me as an adult now. Um, did you have a you know a, a similar experience uh, growing up Catholic? Oh, I, and, I loved it. You
1: know, my wife who's Lutheran in Scandinavia and Scandinavian doesn't always quite. Get it,
0: Vince? But, my you know. Vince, I'm sorry. My wife is Italian and Scandinavian. <laughs> this is freaking me out. <laughs> this is freaking me well, out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, it's all right. But she, you know, she grew up in a, in a very different house where there wasn't a lot of yelling. And the, 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 the Scandinavians are just very different. You know, the Italians and the Irish are very similar. They're very vocal and they're loud. They talk with their hands and they're not afraid to fight physically and verbally and that's the way we were in my house and and my wife doesn't get it and um you know i always tell her you know listen if my dad ever laid a hand on me i had it coming you know the there was black and white and there was no gray and if i stepped over the line (laughs) i pretty much knew i was stepping over the line and gambling and if he whacked me still be it um and i think it raised me with a you know pretty law-abiding citizen i don't uh I don't understand people that try to do things in public that are screwing their fellow, uh, citizens. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all waiting in the carpool lane. They run up to the front or do some other asinine thing like that. You know, it's very. I was just raised a different way to respect authority and to respect other people, and that's <laughs> that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. 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 Well, I think growing up uh, in an Italian Catholic uh, Democratic household in the 50s, uh, I, I think, put me where I am today. I'm, I'm still messed up, Vince.
1: <laughs> well, you know, we, there is that joke that we all talk about, you know, the therapy that we need and how yeah. many, uh, you know... If you got a family with seven or eight kids, there's a good chance that one or two of them went through treatment. <laughs> uh, we had one go through treatment, and probably another two of us could have, but we grew out of it, fortunately. Yeah. Um, now it's not to say I'm going to raise my kids the exact same way my parents you know raised us. Sure. But I think my parents did a damn good job. Now the verdict is kind of out on this on our generation. That's right. You know, you see this you the helicopter parents, and you see. Moms trying to be best friends with their daughters, and I don't think that's the answer. So maybe somewhere in between is where it should all happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, I um, there's one thing that. Uh, well, let me let me go back. Um, when we were growing up, there was a lot going on. There was Cold War, uh, Kennedy, you know Nixon, oh, yeah. blah blah blah. Okay. These kids these days, the only thing they know. These young kids, I mean, they're 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 being raised in a uh, society where there's this Islamic radical funda- fundamentalism going on. Um, yep. And uh, I, I got to tell you, uh, I don't know what what is more scary uh, having to having to you know go through the uh, air raid drills in the fifties and sixties uh, because of the threat of nuclear. Um, intervention with the communists or what 's going on today, um, Vince, what the hell is going on in the world man? I mean, I know you 've studied this phenomenon this this discipline for many, many years, and you write about terrorism uh, in today 's to in today 's world what 's going on bud i mean <laughs>
1: you know i I, I spend a uh... Maybe even an unhealthy amount of time sitting down and thinking about Islamic radical fundamentalism and where this is all headed and i am I am continually amazed by the number of well educated uh, people in this country who are supposed to be intelligent, who make excuses for the radicals within Islam, and they constantly say things like, you know Islam is actually a peace loving religion, and it's only." You know, it's a small minority of Islam that's that's radical, and if you really start to get into Islam, there is no doubt that there are elements of Islam that are peaceful and they don't wish to harm their neighbors. But this, this idea that it's only one or two percent of, of Muslims who are radical is a gross oversimplification. The truth is, the number, if you want to look at if you want to look at how the left in this country, for instance, looks at the Tea Party and says the Tea Party is radical, if, if, if those are going to be your parameters for what radical is, then all of a sudden you're talking about uh, Islam pushing north of 70% being radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you look at Islam in general, Islam is extremely intolerant of homosexuals. Mm-hmm. And that is something in this country that the you know elite left, has pretty much told us, if you are intolerant of homosexuality, you are a bad person, and you are radical, and we are going to shout you down, and you're not good for society. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I just find it perplexing that while they want to shout down anybody who's anti-gay marriage or anti-homosexual, they then give a pass to Islam. And they have this weird blind spot because they look at Islam as a minority religion. Because in the neighborhood they live in, it is a minority religion. What they don't understand is Islam at large, over a billion people worldwide, they are not tolerant of Jews, they are not tolerant of homosexuals, and they treat women worse than women were treated in this country over 100 years ago. And, and it, 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 it is not good that the left can't figure that out. And I've often said that while it, it sounds very high-minded to afford tolerance to a group of uh, religiously bigoted people, uh, it's a really bad way to wage a war. To, to not recognize the reality of the situation does nobody any good. The left needs to get on board here and exert pressure on Islam in the same way they've exerted pressure on the Catholic Church in the past to change and to modernize, and to get the Catholic Church to back off some of their more radical positions. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, if they're going to do that to the Catholic Church, which, you know, a little over a billion people worldwide, they need to do the same thing to Islam, and they've got to stop treating Islam with kid gloves. It, the, the, it, and kind of the short version of why I think Islam is screwed up, uh, it, it comes down to this, and it really is a point from the left. Islam is screwed up. Because women have no say in what goes on in the faith. Can you imagine in any community in this country, uh, Mormon, Christian, Jewish, Catholic, whatever, you just pick a community. Can you imagine how the mothers would react if they found out that a rabbi, a cleric, a pastor, uh, or a minister was recruiting young teenage boys to go blow themselves up? The mothers would tear this guy apart. Mm-hmm. The fathers wouldn't even have to do anything. The mothers would literally kill the man. Mm-hmm. But yet, here we sit in Islam. The mothers give birth. They, they raise the kids when they're young. And then they get shipped off to these madrasas where their brains get poisoned. And the mother no longer has a voice. And there's no way that the moms can support this. But it is such a male-dominated society and religion that the moms have no voice. And until the moms, you know, if they they continue to not have a voice, we're around the same problems. I always joke, you know, if I hadn't met my wife and I was still hanging out at the bars with my six buddies who weren't married, you know what? Mm -hmm. I would have got, who knows how much trouble I would have got in. Mm -hmm. You get six guys alone in a room for a long enough time and they come up with some pretty cockamamie ideas. You need women to civilize and balance men and that is the big thing that's missing in Islam right now and until it gets corrected i think the problem is going to continue
0: well vince come on you you, you know you know damn well as i do that 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 is that ain't going to happen number 1 we go back to the we go back to the to the history of time okay uh-huh. we we've been we've been um you know, we we can start in the 11th and go through the 12th and 13th centuries, where you know we took Jerusalem, then we gave it up again. But but the fight for the land. I mean, there is no way. I I don't see it. I mean, I I got out of the service in the uh, mid 70s. Uh, I worked in the defense b- uh, business after that. I was working on plans for. Uh, the United States, when we started to get in bed with Saudi Arabia in, in the uh, 60s actually, mm-hmm. um, the, the, we were training the Iranians, the Iraqians, the Sudanians, um, the Lebanese pilots. We were building bases. I mean uh, all, of course, for resources as, as, as far as I saw it at that time. Uh, I saw in the early 70s that uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh, we're starting to play with some people or, or at least surround ourselves with some people that, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we don't know a whole lot about them. <laughs> um, but what we do... No, know- and, and,
1: and, and I agree with that. But the problem is that doesn't mean we shouldn't begin to exert pressure right. and continue to exert pressure that certain behavior is unacceptable. And, uh, you know, one of the, the the things that people have to keep in mind is it was less than a hundred years ago that women couldn't vote in this country. That's right. And if you asked a twenty-year-old woman today, you know, did you know that you know less than hundred years ago uh, women couldn't vote in this country? She'd say, "You're lying. You're making it up." Yeah. <laughs> but look how far we've come in a hundred years. Yeah. And here's the other. I mean, and I I agree with everything you were saying about the you know the different cultures and how we can't always just assume that we can change them and Americanize them. And it's the point of, you know, you go back, was the was the Middle East ready for democracy? And my feeling at the time was no, they're not. (laughs) They're not ready for democracy. And if you guys go down this road, we're gonna end up with the Muslim Brotherhood running all these countries and look at what's happened. Yeah. But what has changed in this world is technology. You got the internet, you got smartphones, you got laptops, you got iPads, you got Kindle, you got everything you can imagine. The share, sharing and spread of information has become so vast, it's going to be more and more difficult for these dictators to clamp down on ideas. And I think that you're going to see this stuff. Our Western culture slowly creep into their culture more and more because this is what their kids do. Yeah. They don't want to admit it in public, but you go to Saudi Arabia or Jordan, there's a satellite dish on every apartment balcony. Right. They're all watching American TV. Right.
0: Right, and do you think that's part of the problem, Vince? I mean, we you know our democratic uh, uh, rights uh the the fruit that we have labored here in the United States has got to seem very attractive to uh, individuals, to people, to populations that have been living oppressed and suppressed for so many years. Um, so. What do we do with technology? Technology has no face. Our enemy has no face anymore. Our enemy has no uniform anymore. You know, it's not like the old days where you got on the battlefield and, oh, there's the bad guy. Shoot him. I mean, it's not like that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know who the hell's looking. I don't know who the hell's looking at me or you or, you know, I mean, we don't know anymore. And and that scares me more than anything else, man. Terrorism has no face anymore. And, uh... Well,
1: yeah. Well, it, it has a face, but it is definitely not the easiest thing to combat. There you go. Um, I, I, I look back at, you know, from 2001 all the way through, basically, you know, the end of President Bush's term.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and, and then all of a sudden when President Obama took over, like the homeless issue under, you know, under Reagan, it's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, during Carter, it wasn't an issue, and then Reagan got into office, and it was a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, my my friends on the left side of the aisle, you, you know, you, you practically have to snap their arm behind their back to get them to admit that President Obama has continued virtually all of President Bush's national security policies. Sure. So where are these people who were screaming their heads off about Guantanamo for the past uh, ten years? <laughs> They've fallen very quiet all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And to your point about this faceless, you know, uh, uniformless terrorist, I I have always had a real problem with the argument that um, that these terrorists need to be afforded the protections of the Geneva Convention. And here's why. Here's very simply why I have a problem with it. These men refuse to put on a uniform. They intentionally attack civilian targets now these are two tenants of the Geneva Convention that if you if you do these two things you are automatically booted out of the convention you're, you're done you, you, you it is it is an infraction of the Geneva Conventions so those are two things that they do now taking into account the third thing they are not signatures of the Geneva Convention so why should we afford them the protections of the Geneva Convention and it just—it it amazes me as a country. and This is what I hate about politics. We saw these people on the left get so incensed about the fact that President Bush was taking these people and imprisoning them in Guantanamo. As soon as President Obama comes into office, he says he's going to close Guantanamo. He doesn't close Guantanamo. Almost two years after, he said he was going to close it. And we hear nothing from the left. And, and it, it tears me up because this country used to have a pretty good uh, unifying issue when it was national security. When it came to issues of national security, we set aside our politics and we did what was best for the country. And I just think it's, it's, uh, it's very embarrassing that, that the left screamed it made President Bush's job extremely difficult. And now they are silent about the exact same issue now that President Obama's in office.
0: You know, I feel sorry for people who just watch the news and think that you know that's all there is. And um, there, there's got to be there's got to be a lot more than what we see and hear. And you, you know, you consult for some of these um, uh, defense agencies from time to time. Well, around.
1: I, I would say consult. Well, you, you, get, you get
0: you get you uh, get. Mm. I have access. I, have access. I, I, I talk to a lot of these
1: people, and we yeah. go over certain. Certain issues, and I sure. have agreed to not talk in specifics about them. Sure, um, sure. So yeah, I mean, I, I I know how the sausage gets made. Yeah, that's what you're. Yeah, that's what you're driving
0: at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So you know, I I I I actually think that the media has been doing a lot of. uh, um, They haven't been doing anything dishonest per se, but uh, we you know with the media the way it is right now and the sensationalism and the the monies that are made on commercials and everything else, we just we don't get the news anymore. That's that's part of my point. We don't we don't get. No, I I would agree with that. We don't get the news.
1: Think about this deal. Yeah. So the Bureau of Labor they run they come out with the unemployment numbers. Yeah. And um and the numbers are a little funky and they're seasonally adjusted and there's all these issues and and uh, most real economists are saying the this eight point three percent unemployment is not Yeah. The number is actually about twelve percent because you got to count the people that have stopped looking. Sure. Uh between twelve and fifteen. Well, I I, I hate to say it, but I, if President Bush was in office. I think you would have reporters going berserk that how insensitive it is of you to manipulate this statistic to try to benefit your reelection efforts. <laughs> but with a Democrat in Ohio, we don't hear anything. No. They just regurgitate the numbers and they act like they're the real thing when there isn't an economist in the country that's gonna tell you it's the real number. We all know it isn't.
0: Nobody knows the truth, do we? Well, I mean,
1: I'm starting to wonder if I know it. I mean it's 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 getting more and more confusing.
0: Right. Uh, I don't know, man. It's a crazy world. Well, listen. Let's get let's get off on something nice, okay? Let's get let's right. get let's go off on something uh, a little bit different here. All right. You've got uh, Killshot, your latest novel, um, which I did read your uh, preview copy. By the way, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Real You're good. welcome. Real good. Um, this is the twelfth one with uh, Mitch Rapp, right? Correct the twelfth one. Okay, so given all that you've said, okay, past few minutes, your passion obviously. How did you craft Mitch Rapp? Was did he evolve out of your out of your passion for your subject matter? Did he, you know, was he uh, uh, taken off of somebody you know? How did how did you craft him? Because Uh, we've watched him grow up over the years you know we've watched him get into a little uh, you know uh, we've we've actually watched him get into quite a few (laughs) shitstorms, and he's surviving and I love the fact Uh, I love the character he's 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 extremely brilliant and uh, he's extremely um, um, deceptive I think so how did how did you form him
1: you know, so I'm sitting there, yeah. it's, uh, the, it's the early 90s, and the Berlin Wall has come down, there you go. and I'm asking myself, what's the next problem? Mm. And I kept going back to this Islamic radical fundamentalism and terrorism. hmm And the reason I kept going back to it is because I was born in 66, and I was really a child of the 80s. Right. Graduated from high school in 84 and college in 88. Right. And, you know, so right before I started high school, it was at the Iranian hostage. You know, and you go all the way back to Munich, one of my earliest memories as a kid. Mm. Uh, and then it's the Iranian hostage. And then you got the Achilles Loro, and you got Marine barracks bombing. Mm. Uh, you got Pan am Lockerbie. Mm-hmm. You have all of this string of events in the 80s um, that I just kept looking at and saying, you know, these guys are a problem. <laughs> they keep committing these acts of terror, and they keep firing their AK-47s into the air, burning the American flag, and screaming "death to America" mm-hmm. and "death uh, to Israel." And, it, and I, I didn't see this getting better; I saw it getting worse. And so, as someone who you know grew up dyslexic and didn't read, but then fell in love with Cold War espionage novels in college you know, all the Ludlum stuff and Le Carre and and Clancy's early books, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm going, I really would like to write one of these someday, but, you know, the Cold War is done, what's going to be the next big threat? Hmm. And I I felt very sincerely that it was going to be Islamic radical fundamentalism. So I started to look into terrorism and terrorist organizations and what their demands were and where things were headed, and I said, you know, if, if we're going to wage this war, it's going to be a different war. And what we really need to do is have somebody who's going to go be the tip of the spear, somebody who is going to go kill them before they kill us. And so with that premise, I constructed Mitch Rapp, hmm. who was at Syracuse University, an All-American lacrosse player. Right. He loses his high school sweetheart in a Pan Am Lockerbie uh, crash. And that was important to me because, you know, uh, you know, you can't just find a guy off the street to go do this for a living. They tend to you know, have to be a highly motivated individual. And so I, I wanted Rap to come out of that tragedy, be recruited by the CIA, CIA and then go on to be our one-man killing machine. And, and what was weird for me when 9-11 happened was, you know, I was already into my fourth book at that time, and um, I'd been writing about terrorism. I'd been warning in the books, you know, that um, that some bad stuff was going to happen. And when it did, it wasn't going to be just a couple dozen people. It was going to be a couple thousand. and You know, this rise of Islamic radical fundamentalism was coming to America's shores. And I felt it in my bones. I really felt it was coming. And I don't know if you've ever interviewed Daniel Silva, but he's another fantastic author. Not yet. He's a great guy. He's a buddy of mine. Hmm. And Daniel and I, uh, without knowing each other at the time, had been interviewed and had given kind of the same answer. And we found out years later that that we kept giving the same answer. And people would ask us, you know, how did you guys know? Hmm. And our answer is pretty simple. Hmm. Uh, We knew by simply taking them at their word. Yeah. You know, when they fired the AK-47 in the air and screamed "Death to America," I chose to believe them. Yeah. While most people, you know, let's face it, they're too busy with their lives, and I don't expect them to deal with this issue. But, you know, there can be a there can be a general indictment of our government that there were a lot of hardworking individuals at the Pentagon and the NSA and the CIA and a bunch of other organizations. That were warning bureaucrats and politicians for quite a while, saying, "Hey, we got to deal with these people. We got to deal with these people. They're not going away. They're getting crazier and they're getting crazier." And people didn't take these warnings seriously enough, and unfortunately, we paid the price on nine eleven.
0: We sure did, boy. I tell you, my brother. I had a brother that was down there that day. Uh, he's he he was fine, but. Uh yeah, that that's when the world changed for me. Also, um,
1: is, is your brother okay? Oh mentally?
0: yeah. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, my yeah. All my family's back east, and I'm the only one out here in the west. Um, but uh, yeah, it was scary, and I, I, you know, I I knew the world was changing that day. I mean, as soon as I as soon as I watched the first plane go in that morning, I said, "Oh boy, here we go." And what flashed in my head was everything I I did. In the defense area, after the service, it's like holy crap! All this crap's coming to fruition. It blew me away. Anyway, what are you gonna do? I, you know, yeah. I, I think what we got to do, Vince. The only thing we have to, the what I do every day is I try to, I, I try to teach a kid something. Uh, I try to open up a child's eyes. I try to put something in his head that uh, that opens his eyes and ears and uh you know trying to get trying to get kids and people to to change the way they look at life cuz life is not what it used to be and no, life, life is it not, isn't it isn't well anyway you know that'll segue us into uh saying goodbye unfortunately but uh Hey, Vince, uh, you know, that moves me into, a, a, um, a segue into your personal life. Um, give, give, give our audiences a little snapshot of Vince Flynn and his family life for, for a second or two.
1: Well, you know, it, it was, uh, about 15 months ago, I was diagnosed with stage three metastatic cancer. Yeah. Um, that. first 48 hours were the worst 48 hours of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's ever been diagnosed with cancer, they know the feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we pulled out of that and, uh got some great care uh, with doctor, my main doctor, Dr. Youth in the Twin Cities, and then Dr. Kwan down at the Mayo Clinic. And what originally seemed like a, a death sentence has now turned into a, 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 a real chance at eating this. Uh, my health has continued to improve with the treatments they've had me on. And uh, I'm happy to be alive, <laughs> happy to be alive and writing, and I actually feel better than I felt in three years. Wow. And uh, I'm really excited to start the next rap book.
0: Well, Vince, I cannot wait to. Uh, first of all, I can't wait to see Killshot actually bound, because I've got a kind of an unbound version that uh, was sent to me so I could get a read on this. Um, folks, uh, we're going to have to say goodbye to uh, uh, one of the most acclaimed suspense novelists in the world today. I mean, give me a break. This guy's amazing, Vince Flynn. Um, on behalf of the Marshall Public Library, I'd like to thank. Uh, Vince Flynn for uh, getting on the horn with us today um, uh, I, I encourage everybody to go out and read his latest novel kill shot uh, the 12th uh, novel wrapped around Mitch Rapp and um, I suspect Vince we can find your books anywhere correct they are available
1: pretty much everywhere I hope
0: <laughs> well I, I well listen thank you very much I hope uh, I hope there's an opportunity down the road maybe in a uh, next year to, to to uh, further this this discussion, I'd be uh, I'm uh, I'm waiting uh, kind of anxiously with my eyes and ears wide open to see how the world's going to turn out in the next few years. And uh, Vince, uh, all I can say is uh, keep writing. Your stuff is absolutely amazing, and uh, you command a lot of respect, sir. Hey,
1: thanks, Greg.
0: I really appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, buddy.
1: See you later. Bye.